Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. I'm thinking to myself, I love Tel Aviv, but I have a good job and I live in London. If I don't go now, it will never happen. So I have to try sooner or later. So um, I told my parents, they were like, what are you thinking? No way, you have a good job. You have a, an offer of a master's degree in LSE. Do your master's degree, then think about it. So I did my master's degree, carried on thinking about it. And then I had another job. And suddenly you're on this path, right, to uh, a nice house and living in the suburbs, you know, and you can see your future ahead of you. And it looked exactly like your parents' life uh, and all of their friends' lives. And you still have that thought, if I don't go now, I'm going to wake up in 10 years and I'm going to be like, it's never going to happen. So I was 25. I said, I've got to do it. I came to Tel Aviv. Um, and when I arrived in Tel Aviv, I did open for about six months um, and eventually kind of found my way in uh, consulting in BCG. I was there for seven years, uh, an amazing rocket ship. Uh, all sorts of amazing stuff, which I'm sure we can dive into and talk about, and then ended up realizing that, you know, it's amazing doing these massive corporate consulting jobs and traveling all over the world. But um, in the course of being here, I got married, had kids, realized I wanted to be maybe less all over the place and be a bit more focused on one thing, and then made a jump into the startup world. So I went from like 25,000 foot, um, kind of huge organizations to like in the trenches, in the mud, 
of startup life. So that's the best kind of who I am, kind of how I, where I am, which is a startup world. Uh, and why do I do it? I think that's a, a really good question. I don't think it's so basic, actually. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of maybe wake up sometimes and think, why do I do what I do? And you kind of just found yourself, right? Like life has its twists and turns and you end up doing something that maybe there were moments where you thought about it, um, but sometimes you just kind of end up in it. I think the real question is, why do you keep doing it? Uh, and I think I keep doing it because I love it and I really enjoy it. How did I end up with a whole <laughs> lottery of uh, random life, you know? I've done uh, three relocations. I had the um, first time Australia, zero onboarding. They got me to the office once and they're like, this is where we have lunch. This is what the printer is. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. <laughs> Second time with uh, LinkedIn in Dublin, uh, much better. You get a, you show up, you start getting paid a week before you even start working. They put you in a in an apartment for a good month. You have a relocation allowance that you can spend to buy sheets or TV or whatever it is. There's like all those cultural groups that help you ease into the city, so much nicer. <laughs> and then one time with London with a startup, it, it absolutely no onboarding into the city whatsoever. There's the work that needs to be done and you learn everything else for doing the work, for meeting the people. I can't say which one I prefer, mm-hmm. um, but I can say that a relocation just triggers this, um, I don't want to say survival mode, but something very primal, you know, something very unique. I felt very isolated, very switched on in a way, but also very ignorant. Like, how do you even rent an apartment in a, in a new country? The lingo, what's acceptable, what's not, how do you negotiate, if you negotiate, all those tiny things <laughs> that are also so embedded into how business is done and how work is done. So did you find it hard to make that transition work-wise? So I would say, first of all, I like your description I remember very early on when I moved here, standing in a queue somewhere, um, holding in one hand, I think it was like a falafel with some chips stuffed in at the end. And my left hand, I was paying. And next to me in the queue behind me, like also, I think waiting for their food to be made was a family. And the father was holding his like, toddler in his arms and the toddler's like next to me and as I'm paying and I get my money change I look over and the toddler is reaching and he just takes a chip out of my falafel out of the pitta I think there's nothing there's no better it's not that one is better than the other's work they're just different and I think you know people talk about you know Israel is a hub of innovation unbelievable startups and I'm for sure Again, I, I don't know, I've never analyzed it, but I'm sure there must be some kind of correlation between right culture and uh, dynamism in terms of like startup um, output. So yes, the kind of the balagan, the chaoticness, uh, the directness, the not disrespectful hierarchy, but the collaborative mindset of titles are just things on paper. It doesn't translate to... Um, authority in terms of an opinion being worth more or less. 
I think, I'm sure it does translate to this crazy success story of the startup nation. But then I, you know, I also say, I look at the UK and I say, look at these like, giant like, uh, titans of industry, right? Like some of the banks, some of the automotive, some of the industrial goods. You know, you look at some of like these like massive, successful British organizations who, if we were to take the same approach, we would look at them and we'd say, oh my goodness, how British are they? How compared to, I don't know, Israel, how organized and how hierarchical and how um, kind of formal Layered, these organizations structured. are and structured and uh, conventional. But then look at these, they are massive, they are successful, they have been successful for decades, they look like there's no chance of anyone knocking them off of their perch, right? They're doing something right. It's not that one is better than the other. I think, you know, they each have their place. I think it really ends up at the point that a lot of people already do talk about, which is, you know, Israel produces many fantastic startups, but not so many Googles. Because the transition from we are 5, 10, 25 people in a cool space together, you know, breaking the boundaries, rapid decision making to your 5,000 people, what it takes to succeed as 5,000 people versus 25 people is very, very different, right? Mm. And um, so there's something to be said for maybe these kind of less dynamic and kind of crazy environments or formal environments. They, they are getting something right. So there's a blend, right? There's something in the middle. I wish you could learn that because there's no... There's not a lot of room for hierarchy when you're 20 people sharing a co-working space. Exactly. Like, of course, someone needs to be able to, uh, to make a decision and own it. But, you know, we all know more or less the same things about mm -hmm. the organization. Some have more context, more specialty, fine. But I saw it when you get to 60, 70 people, if there aren't any formal processes, you know, people are swamped with making decisions insufficient data they are just suffocated by the amount of responsibility they have because there's no structure that allows for delegation i'll give you an analogy tell me what you think so i think a lot of startups are built like we send cold emails you don't send that email with with uh, with aim to land the deal you just want to get a response right you just want to get to the next stage in the conversation so in a way i think some some companies are built like that I have an idea. I just want to get my seed round. I just want to secure the first money. I'll figure it out after. You get that money, you're like, okay, that idea was good enough to get $300,000, <laughs> but the idea that's going to get me $3 million is completely different, and you pivot. So would you say that's a... I would say that's a great analogy. I mean, I, I would say there's always some, there is always like a, a northern star, like loosely vision, like this is where we want to get to but with a acceptance, and rightfully so, I think it's right, an understanding that that Northern Star is gonna move, you know, a few degrees, right? And it will move because in the process of getting to that first milestone and then saying, okay, now we'll figure out for the next milestone, it may move a bit. And I think it's funny, right? Because if something's off by a few degrees, over a short distance, it doesn't matter, but over a long distance, it takes you way, way, way further from where you originally thought you would end up. Um, you know, so like two degrees off over the course of five years, 10 years, you will have a business very, very different to what you originally planned as your Northern Star. Just two degrees because it's so much time and so much distance traveled. 
uh, you're a long way from where you where you thought you would be. I want to go back to the UK Israeli type thing. So back in the UK, BCG, 25,000 employees or so, truly multinational. And then you came here and now you work for a company with what? 10 employees? Give or take. Give or take. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about what they also do and what's your role in there. And also what you brought with you to the UK and how was it received in Israel? context of Osu is um, open banking. So open banking was a wave of legislation that was passed in the UK in 2016, but came into full kind of enforcement. Everyone was obliged to comply the end of uh, 2019. What we provide and what we built on top of open banking is the way to pay direct from your bank account. So at that checkout moment, you click pay direct from your bank, you select your bank, from a list, then you authenticate yourself with your face ID or your fingerprint, and then you will see within your own banking app the summary of the order. You are about to pay £100 to Tesco from your current account. Do you confirm? Click confirm, you are done. Tesco received the money instantly, so they don't wait two or three days for the funds. The fees are a fraction of the 1% to 3%. Why? Because there are no middlemen anymore. And I think thirdly, the fraud and risk element is nearly eliminated because the payment is being made directly from the bank. So when you make a payment from the bank, the security is from the bank. And bank level security is, you couldn't, you know, we can all guess how much is invested by banks in customer security. I would say there's also maybe a layer of privacy because there's less people who are exposed to my financial details. And I don't have to wait for my statement to be updated to see transactions that are made. I just see it in my bank account. So I, I know what's going on in my bank accounts. But if you ask me to recall the last 10 transactions on my card, <laughs> I wouldn't remember. Yeah. I think what open banking does is when you frame it to consumers of uh, you are gaining full control of your money. When you choose to pay a merchant for their service, 99.9% .9 of that goes to the merchant. It is a direct from you to them, introduces an element of transparency and control that's missing today. It's not necessarily that people feel that it's a pain that they don't understand what's going on, but they certainly like when they do understand what's going on and it gives them that control. I think it's a shift in consumer behavior across many verticals, which is consumers are starting to say they they like transparency, fairness, control. Uh, I think it's a generational element to it as well, which is younger spenders are, you know, earlier adopters of new technologies, new ways of uh, doing things online. So I think it all converges. I think people are more mission-driven, purpose-driven, um, which is why totally different subject but you see you know people don't go to work for one company for life anymore you know they're constantly searching for say meaning or value in what they're doing you mentioned financial literacy and i grew up not being financially literate and many of my generation are the same you know you go it works you earn money you get uh, you get it out of your bank account something's happened should i save for my pension shouldn't i insurance oh i hate them all like i'd rather not touch it at all 
um, you know, if you're if you're really stressed or you know if you're transitioning work, changing country, then so starting a business, then maybe you have to kind of like educate yourself a little bit more and kind of like um, rearrange your financials and stuff. But you can go out through the majority of your adult life without actually touching any of that. So if I just take problem solving less about having the perfect answer and much more about being able to figure out the best way possible to answer that question. So I think consulting backgrounds bring that in a big way to start up, which is we need to do X. How are we going to do X? We have to do it by tomorrow. And yes, when you're in a startup, you don't have six weeks and teams of five people and uh, unlimited expert resources, right? But still just the pause to say, okay, wait, like how can we solve this smartly? And now I have to add in constraints that maybe you didn't have when you were in BCG or McKinsey or Bain or any of these firms. I only have a day or I only have two days and I don't have all the resources. But some of the elements are still common enough. And I think at least I found sometimes just having the structure of how I would answer the question and then making some assumptions here and there, doing lots of shortcuts, you still get to a far better outcome and answer than if you'd just done it on the fly. And so that's one angle. I think also what people bring is communication because yes, the output of all of this problem solving typically falls into kind of Excel and PowerPoint, which is kind of, you know, their even the joke of like consulting, if you will, is like, oh, they're PowerPoint, PowerPoint and Excel monkey. They just like churn out the presentation that go nowhere. But it's actually much more about the communicate. How do you communicate these insights that you've gained? when you're in a room with, say, the CEO of this vast organization and his executives who have jam-packed days and weeks, they don't have time to, you know, go and do this analysis. That's why you're there. But you're not, it's not necessarily that they couldn't do this. They, perhaps they could, but, you know, between managing, say, a billion dollars of revenue and, you know, 3,000 employees and customers and cost and negotiations and all of these other things, what a luxury to be able to take, you know, six weeks to solve this thorny org problem. So they don't have time. So you get one hour with them, say, twice, three times during the project, and you need to crystallize everything you found into a format that they can digest, understand, and then make a decision on. So I think what the other angle that consulting brings is that skill set of how do we take everything we're doing, say, as a startup and put it into the 10-slide deck that we show to investors or the five slide company overview that we send in advance of a important uh, sales meeting, something around that's like the written communication. And yes, it's PowerPoint. It's also Excel, which is just like crunching the numbers quickly, smartly, but in a way that then gets to the output that someone who wasn't part of solving the problem very quickly understands. I understand what this is showing. I understand why you did this analysis and I understand the decision it's leading me towards. I can form an opinion. Yeah. And I think the third thing is, it's kind of the verbal communication, both with clients, but also internally, which is an ability to communicate clearly, quickly, uh, and effectively so that you invest your time more on solving the problem and then communicating that well uh, as output. They haven't been part of any of the analysis. They've barely been there day to day, right? They're doing other things very quickly, like within 
two minutes, digest, understand, and then give super like concise to the point. I would reframe this as this. Did you think about this? No, here's how I would go about and do it. Step one, step two, step three. This is great. I wouldn't change it much. And uh, I think we need to add a section at the end that's currently missing for these reasons. Done. Phenomenal insight. Super to the point. And you learn from that. You absorb it, right? Because you don't have the benefit, right? They've been doing it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years or more. And if you've been there, in my case, I joined with two years of experience. I left with seven years at BCG. You pick that up. You absorb. Um, you're always working on it, right? Um, so I think that communication aspect you also bring to a startup. I think Israeli startups already have it to some like a much greater degree, right, than say it's just a cultural thing, right, which is, you know, there's no time for BS in startups in general. And then you add on being in Israel, right, there's no time for BS in Israel for stuff. Like people are super to the point. I think, but you bring that, I think in startups maybe that aren't in the Israeli context so i think of startups in london or new york or or anywhere in the us even where maybe it's it's a, it's a bit more european or american right it's a bit more soft and uh have you have you considered possibly maybe that we would add a, another brain. type of analysis and then i think people from consulting in those cultures come with a very you know i think we should go about it we should break it down into these three problems you tackle this one, you tackle this one, you tackle this one. I think when we converge on that, we'll have a very good presentation for the investors next week, right? I think, so it's solving the problem. It's uh, kind of the um, written content and then the verbal presentation element. I think those are three things that I feel that most consultants will take from consulting life to startup life. Did you find that startups in Israel are receptive to this process-driven thinking? I think they are. I mean, I found that they are. I found that people are very respectful of of considered opinion because I think it cuts through the noise. I think that's in general, by the way, not even necessarily in Israel. I think in meetings where there's maybe a lot of opinion, when someone comes in with a guide's time out, why don't we break it down into one, two, three, everyone listen just because it's a, such a shift in the dynamic of a conversation so I think people are people are receptive because it's clear voice of someone trying to solve something rather than just add another, throw another voice into the mix, like I'm not throwing a voice into the mix, I'm saying I don't have a solution, but if I'm listening to everyone, perhaps we could go about it by doing and I know we don't have two weeks. We have, let's give ourselves two days to do one, two, and three. In order to do it, I need A, B, C. And then can we find 30 minutes in two days? Then we might have a more constructive conversation. I think whether it gets accepted or not to do that is a different question. But whether people are receptive to hearing this suggestion, I think very much so. Because if you're in a kind of a conversation that's going round and round with no decision, if you lead with it, Maybe not, but if after, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour of not really getting anywhere, and then you say, how about we try this? People are receptive because they say, you know what? Maybe we can defer this decision by 48 hours and have a better conversation 
it's worth it. Um, then you have to deliver, right? But then, then you know, the onus is on whoever's leading this has been two days has to come back with the content that drives a better, more informed decision. It may be that had they taken the decision, say, on Monday, they would have come to the same decision that they came to on Wednesday after they saw the materials or output. But the confidence you have in the decision on Wednesday when you've done it with the output is much greater because if someone then says to you, for example, an investor says, well, you've added a whole, you're investing, I don't know, a quarter of your runway to solving this problem, why? And then you have already maybe the slides or the analysis and say, well, we looked at it and we didn't just make it on a whim, we investigated it. Yes, it was a bit 80-20. Obviously, we don't have all the resources. We couldn't spend a million dollars on a consulting firm to do it for us. But on the basis of like logic, what's available guesstimations yeah this is but this is it i can stand i can i can we can argue about the logic we can discuss the assumptions if you have a better assumption let's use it but you can have confidence that we thought about it we tried to solve it the best way we could so i think there is value it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a change in direction it just means you have more confidence or you have the materials you need to stand by it if you're challenged or someone asks Yeah, the defendable answers uh, would be there. And there's also, there's also data wins debates, right? And data could be better understanding the problem, not necessarily bringing a, a set of, of answers, just better understanding of the problem. Um, excellent. It sounds like you've done that. <laughs> uh, that's part of the Daniel Scott playbook of like letting the conversation <laughs> happen, making sure I understand people's opinions and perspective and then say, By the way, I have, a, <laughs> I have a deck right here that maybe is able to help us go in the right direction. It's a real mix uh, of, of, of the tools you bring and how they're received. I think because when your business and you get more authority and more responsibility in making those judgment calls, you also get more credit for it. So in startup life, you don't have all the resources that you have in consulting. But if you're in a leadership role, people understand that and they respect it and they are receptive to it. And if you didn't bring something from the toolbox, it's not judged as being like a bad thing. Whereas in a big consulting firm, I would say that it's the flip side. Like you're expected to bring to every single engagement, meeting, touch point, something new, something that uh, something extra, always trying to get to the last mile of absolutely everything. I think when it's your own business, you want to do that, but you don't have the unlimited resources, and, but you also get the freedom or the trust to make those judgment calls of, you know, going to do the hundredth iteration of this analysis, you know, in the consulting mindset, it might just trigger some unique insight that's going to change the uh, result. In your startup life, right? You never get to a hundredth iteration. You do like three, four, if you're lucky, because you're so busy with other things at all times. But people are forgiving of that. And if you didn't even do one iteration, because sometimes stuff happens, yeah. you, you, you are forgiven it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, people are receptive. They're also very respectful. And I think it's not even unique, by the way, to, to Israel. I think in all cultures, um, startup consulting kind of mix uh, have that same, I, I would imagine have the same 
dynamic. I want to um, ask you about your title. You have a unique one, CBO. <laughs> Can you explain? Sure. Um, so I think it would wait up in the air whether it would be kind of chief commercial or chief marketing. Uh, and a friend of mine who worked in a startup in London has the title chief business officer. So I asked him, what did this mean? And he said he was in very much, you know, it was very clear in his organization who was CEO, what responsibilities came with that title, who was uh, COO and what came with that title. And everything that was left, which was partnership, strategy, sales, marketing, all kind of came under him. And he was early, they were early enough that he didn't know yet over time where he would end up spending most of his efforts. And so, you know, he didn't want to say chief marketing officer and then find that after, you know, one, two years, he was doing more sales. He didn't want to say I'm this chief commercial officer and then find two years later, he's doing much more marketing. So I think he said he chose chief business officer because it left things on the table. And it was a title that over time, if it fades, because you then evolve into one of those areas and it creates room in the organization for the other titles, you can do that. So it's not, it's a title that I think five years from now, Otto's flying. Do I think there will still be a chief business officer? I honestly think possibly and even hopefully not because it would have evolved and each of those functions that fall under it are big enough and justifiable enough to have the relevant three-letter title and I think for me I wasn't I, I really am I really related to how he said you know right now everyone I'm doing a bit of everything of all of these elements so I chose a title that kind of covers all of them without being too committed and for example and he gave a great example and I've had that experience too is when you reach out to a prospective partnership if he had chosen or if I had called myself chief marketing officer and then I reach out to a large organization under the pretext of looking for a collaboration. The recipient might be, why is the chief marketing officer reaching out well, on the do, subject do of strategic partnership? Why is this person the one contacting me? So I think it's, it's unique or sort of like a non-committal enough to cover quite a few things and leave space in the future for dividing or reframing uh, as needed. One of my mentors made a distinction once between working in the business and working on the business. So in a startup, you often don't get to make that distinction. You work on both simultaneously. True. If you are a C-suite executive such as yourself, sometimes you have to extract yourself from working in the business in order to make those decisions because what really matters, your dynamic with the co-founders is more critical to your success and the company's success than, than you putting a deck together. Maybe, I don't know, but it's, it's a lot of balancing uh, between those, uh, those two levels. I want to ask you a bit about mentorship because one of the previous guests, Felix, taught me about a term called one degree of freedom. When you move into a new company or a new role, you want to preserve one degree of freedom, meaning you know, if I go into a new industry in a new country, um, in a new role, then, then what do I have to rely on, right? 
So moving countries, uh, moving from different types of organizations, consultancy into a startup and doing a role you've never done before, like managing a P&L. Um, what are your degrees of freedom and how did you manage to take so much on at such a short period of time? When I started as a consultant. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And this personality type, right? So some people, um, just by nature, when no matter how crazy things get, they're really, really calm. And then there's people who, I know, get the slightest sign of uh, chaos, like collapse and panic and i wouldn't say i was i would definitely neither extreme but i was somewhere in the middle like by nature generally calm but if things really did kind of like if, if shit really hit the fan yeah i would get stressed uh i would like not sleep you know in my in those first projects you know there i remember like sleepless nights you know like really stressing you know uh the presentation tomorrow i think shit on slide 72 there's a spelling mistake that the slide that i did but it's too late we already sent the presentation losing sleep like stressing something you can't even solve or fix right and most of the time by the way it's like a nightmare it's not even you see the presentation like oh it was just a previous version and i already found this mistake and fixed it but as time went by i ended up more and more with the mentality of like this thursday night client has called the presentation with the CEO is on Sunday and they're not happy about a key section of the deck that's, I don't know, 10 slides long out of a 30-page deck. I know five slides they're just really unhappy about. It's Thursday night, presentations on Sunday. And by the end, my attitude was like, okay, well, it's Thursday night. That's like, <laughs> there's still at least 48 hours until we do the presentation. That's plenty of time not stressful at all like I've got 
phenomenal people, hardworking, phenomenal people who also care and wouldn't want this to be a failure and also want to succeed, who would understand that, you know, sometimes these things happen. And unfortunately, yeah, I'll have to send them a message and we'll have to work on it over the weekend. We'll all take part, we'll divide up the slides, even though maybe this section was primarily one person. It's a team, so I'll take on some, the other people will take on some, and between the four of us, we'll fix it. And we'll send it to the client counterpoint on, I don't know, Saturday evening. Say, hey, we've taken uh, a recut of this one. You know, please give us your feedback, you know, ASAP, so that on Sunday morning we can do any final changes if needed. I think by the time I left, I was much more towards their calm, like in any scenario, personality or, and it wasn't personality type, it was like trained, it was sort of like developed over time. So I think in transitioning, because that was one of the things I built for myself in my time in the consulting world, I was able to take on the pressure or stress, if you will, um, that came with kind of uh, being a founder and leader, which is that the pressure is constant, the constant pressure, you're never able to switch off. When a client or prospective customer sends an email on like a Saturday, I will respond straight away. If they're working Saturday, like a prospective customer has reached out, then I'll respond on Saturday to show that to demonstrate like, you know, we are responsive, you know, so there may be competitors out there, but how many will you get an email from a chief business officer on a Saturday after you send your email, right? To show like the hustle or the eagerness to be available, but it's constant pressure, but I don't think it has the same peaks and troughs. So I think startup pressure, say there's pressure is one to 10 and 10 is off the charts. Like, you are going to lose your mind, it's so stressful. I would say startup pressure, at least for me, it's a constant seven, eight, and sometimes it's a 10. And sometimes it goes down to like a back to seven, seven, eight, seven, eight, seven, eight, boom, period of 10, back down to seven, eight. And I think consulting for me pressure was five, 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 six, and then 11, 12, 11, 12, off the charts, crazy, then back down to five, six. And when you deal with these extreme spikes so often, and then you modify your own mindset that the 11, 12s become seven, eight, and then you make the transition, it now feels like, yeah, this is, this is pressure. Like I, this is a pressure, but I dealt with this pressure. I succeeded where you overcame this pressure. So many times, client on the phone, like the most frantic, you know, stressed out about something and you solve it and you fix it and you solve it and you fix it in like 24 hours, 48 hours. So then you're in startup and yes, the pressure's always on, but it's your own. It's not some client calling you out of their mind with like a, something that they think is unfixable because in their mind, it's Thursday night now the weekend you're not going to work and then Sunday this will be the presentation when it's your own when it's you right you have much more ownership of the peaks and troughs because you're controlling it there's one topic we didn't really discuss and I wondered if it's even something to discuss 
But for those of us who are only listening and aren't seeing, then you're wearing hearing aids. I am. Having a conversation with you, being able to read my lips with my funny Israeli accent, <laughs> uh, absolutely a non-issue. But was it ever an issue? It's a great question. So I started wearing hearing aids when I was three. So to an extent, it's all I've, all I've known. As every good uh, Jewish boy should do, I have to credit my mother. <laughs> my mother, um, you know, again, all the advice of... Uh, experts of he should go to like a special school for people who have hearing losses um was like absolutely adamant that like no he should just go to the same school as like his friends and if he's thriving and if he's succeeding then that's all the proof that i need that like it was the right decision so i think i was very fortunate in that regard that i would just kind of i wouldn't say like thrown like a baby into the deep end but with the very like mindset of like, you know, until the evidence says that you should change anything, we're not changing anything. So I was very fortunate that I was kind of perhaps thrown a bit or pushed a bit into going in like headfirst, proceeding as normal. I think as a teenager, I was much more conscious of it than others, which is I think just every teenager is conscious about something about themselves that actually no one else or other people are aware of, but don't think about it as much as they do. But when it's your own teen uh, kind of insecurity, you're more conscious of it than anybody else. You imagine it to be more visible to people. So I, th I don't think it was an issue. I think I, I, I know that just, you know, the one thing that would always grate me, and even still to some extent, people say it with the best of intent and meaning, but like I remember the... You know, like if I, when I got into Cambridge or, or did well in my exams and so on, I, I remember like sort of explicit or implicit, like, you know, it's what an achievement considering. But I would always take that to be, what do you mean considering? What, that I would have done better? Where like my achievement is, instead of being, a, let's say, a 10 out of 10 achievement, you've now made it 7 out of 10. Because had I not had hearing aids, what you're saying, I would have, gone to Cambridge when I was 12 or I would have done a PhD by the time I was 21 you know like but and it meant well like impressive considering I know where it comes from a good intention but there is no considering like there, it is I do have like there is no alternative there's no I could I oh let me try again without or let me prove to you that without hearing aids I would have it would have only been the same there's no considering it is what it is it's a good achievement I think so that's kind of life aspect of it, I guess. There's only once or twice ever professionally I've kind of felt it negatively. Never anywhere I worked. Once when I was approached while I was at BCG to consider joining another company and uh, during one of the in first, second conversations with a VP from the company, the VP said something like, just straight open to my face, said something like, um, I see you wear hearing aids. Um, I have to confess that gives me for some concern for how you'd succeed. And uh, I was like a bit shocked. Like, why are you, uh, why are we even having this conversation then? As in, one is, if I, truly my success has demonstrated itself by the fact that you guys have approached me to have this conversation. And secondly, 
how am I supposed to respond in an interview to this statement? What I should now start defending my psych. I should now now start to prove to you in an interview setting, if you will, that I can succeed despite it. Like what, what do you want from me here? Um, and I think I would, what would, 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 would we say that to say someone in a wheelchair, you know, uh, I see you're in a wheelchair, duh, you know, come on, it's obvious you're in a wheelchair or yes, you can see my hearing aid. You know, I have concerns that it's going to limit your abilities to succeed. What would you expect the person in the wheelchair to say? I mean, it, you might consider, some might consider it outrageous, like you shouldn't, you know, there's something clearly wrong here. Obviously, I was uh, very polite, charming, but, you know, when they asked me to come back for a further conversation, I said, no, I've thought about it. I don't think it's for me. Um, it really put me off, obviously, not even the organization, right, which is a whole other thing, which is people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And this was the person who would have been the VP I was working with. I was like, clearly, could be a fantastic place to work. Could be that 99% of the managers are incredible, wonderful organization. But day to day, if I have to work with this person based on one meeting with them and this question, like, it's clearly not going to be a good fit, which is why people obviously leave companies as well, which is they could be in an amazing place, but just stuck in a part of the organization under the guidance of someone who's unpleasant or not a good fit. So for the most part, I think it's been more on my mind than other people's. I think the interesting thing for me that I think about is I think there's all this amazing stuff going on with uh, people kind of pushing like gender uh, equality in, in like just because I'm in the startup world, like in venture capital, right? You see very few female partners of VC firms. You see the statistics about like the um, investments made into startups where the female led or even just a female is part of the uh, founding team. And you also see it with like ethnic minorities and the statistics are really like telling like it's completely misproportional and it's it's why rightfully there are so many efforts focused on these topics and redressing this uh imbalance and then i start to think i wonder what it looks like for founders that come with disabilities of some sort i think it's probably and i'm this is probably the bcg of me i can't guess because i don't have the numbers but i'm sure if i went through the steps of doing the analysis of finding how many startups have founders with some form of disability, looking at VC firms, how many VC investors have some form of disability, looking at the percentage of, I don't know, decks submitted, how many actually made it through to a second round, look at what the correlation between whether it was pitched in person where that visibility was visible versus disguised by the fact it was offline. I think it would be startling I think it would be startling and I think it's uh maybe the next frontier of um I guess what like a diversity diversity inclusivity. exactly so what advice would you give to a uh, founders or hiring managers when it comes to hiring and considering candidates with some form of disability good question so I think part of my answer is that It's not homogenous. So how one person, say, in a wheelchair 
think about their life or their disability as being wheelchair bound, it's probably very different to how someone with the exact same, say, injury and or cause of disability or scenario. So two people in a wheelchair, same level of mobility in their life, probably think about it very differently to each other. So therefore, for a hiring person or a manager, there are no there are no hard and fast rules because of that, right? So, you know, in any aspect of it, two people could be outwardly appear the same. Both could, I don't know, have uh, almost identical looking lives and yet think about their lives in completely different ways, right? Um, because they're different personalities. That's part of my answer is just to treat each individual, make no assumptions, I think is my answer. One is to make zero assumptions that that person would be offended, wouldn't be offended, is overtly aware of it and always thinking about it, or if they are like a lunatic. And, you know, that's amazing. Like, there are all shapes of sizes of people like in wheelchairs, right? And I think of people who are fearless or like they again they come across to me as fearless that they are like hurtling into the road doing all sorts of crazy stuff that even i able fully all limbs intact wouldn't do for fear that like it's crazy and dangerous they are doing and maybe they are completely full of fear they do this to kind of prove to themselves that they can get over their fear right and there might be someone that i look at and say wow he's so scared of doing anything and actually he's very confident he just doesn't like doing those things Part of it is making no assumptions. I think if you go in the mindset of making no assumptions and then just take the person's lead from it, so if they bring it up, you know, then they talk about it. If they don't bring it up, then I wouldn't see any reason to, personally. I think, you know, if you choose to hire someone on the basis of what they present, right, which is like, you know, you an interviewer like runs the conversation on paper, if you will. And obviously a good candidate is also kind of interviewing the interviewer and the organization in parallel. So I think if the stage is reached where, you know, this person, you've met them a bunch of times, they've excelled in the interviews, any assignments you've given them, that's a great cultural fit, good personality, vibe, connect with the team, and then you've made them an offer and they accept, then I think the only thing to do is, you know, to say like, is there anything we can provide you as part of your joining. I'm not even in the language of disabled or not. I think it would be like, you know, we provide on day one, you'll get a computer, key access, blah, blah. Is there anything missing? Let me know. And they may reply saying, I need X, Y, and Z. And it may be something related to their disability. It may not. It may just be they got it fully covered. They, you know, maybe like the building doesn't have evidently disabled access. But on their own accord, they called the building, you know, uh, phone number, spoke to the person at the entrance of the building, said, hey, I'm starting at the company on Tuesday on floor seven. Can you just make sure on Tuesday that there is a ramp put by the entrance of the building if there isn't one? Right. They did it for themselves. They're perfectly capable of doing so. I can't speak for everyone. And I think no one should in any, what's the word, demographic aim to speak for everyone and that's one of the problems we sometimes have is we like to say uh so and so is a spokesperson for this community and she's a spokesperson for 
I don't know, the women's rights movement. And there's plenty of women who's like, no, she doesn't speak for me. I speak for myself. So I'm conscious in answering this question that I speak only for myself. And therefore, I think my answer is much more that make no assumptions. Every case is different. Let the person, if they bring it up, bring it up or not. If they want to bring it up, they will. Um, and if they don't want to, then I wouldn't, I, I would say don't bring it up because it's not like, at least again, at least I never forget that I wear hearing aids. So if I haven't brought it up, it's not because I've forgotten, it's because I chose not to. Uh, just like I chose not to bring up any number of other things, right, in a conversation. So are there any clear don't do's in that <laughs> regard? Questions you shouldn't be asking, behaviors you shouldn't be exhibiting, stuff of that sort? I would say don't bring it up. It's, I'm saying the, the, the questions I wouldn't, so like in our conversation, I know that when I, when we messaged, I mentioned it, right? So I initiated. So that me putting it on the table, if you will. And then I know in advance you asked, would I be comfortable to talk about it? But I'd already... You gave him permission. Yeah, but I'd already introduced it to the dynamic by mentioning it. Yeah. And then you responded by saying, is it okay, something we discuss? But I had initiated, I brought that subject into our dialogue, if you will. So I would say, don't, if you're not the person with the disability, if you will, don't be the one to introduce it or put it on the table. Let that person be the one to decide or not whether it's on the table. Once they bring it on the table, it, it provided they're first to bring it on the table, then it's absolutely okay to say, you mentioned that you have X, Y, Z. May I ask ABC? Because they put it on the table. And if they haven't put it on the table, then we get it. Just like, you know, I think if, uh, it would be crazy to imagine in the 21st century, MBA graduate from Harvard going to an interview on Wolf Street, she arrives in her skirt and dress and some interviewer saying, I see you're a female. Are you, it would be crazy, right? What do you feel about the exactly. ABC? Yeah. And you know, but, but you, you think back 50 years, probably less, it's terrible, maybe 20 years, 10 years. By the way, you know, it's terrible to say, probably even does still happen, right? It's just that I think of it as crazy, but it probably happens still. That people yeah, say, I see, I see you're a female. Have you thought that this might be a bit too much of a macho environment for you to work in? And we intuitively, I think that's crazy. And I think the same lens applies for someone, say, in a wheelchair or who's blind or deaf or any other form of disability would be, I think, it's as crazy that what someone should arrive, have the most obvious thing about them brought up and then asked if they think it's an issue. It's the same thing as, I think, gender or... Would you say organizations that uh, facilitate and, and purposefully uh, onboard folks with disability are, are better for it? Oh, that's a really good question for me because, because I always chose personally never to accept or utilize the extra support available. On the one hand, efforts to create diversity and equalness, if you will, are fantastic. It's like a conscious effort to create equalness and diversity, but it shouldn't ever come at the 
cost of meritocracy. Ultimately, at the end of the day, meritocracy should rule. Like people should be um, onboarded, rewarded, hired on the basis of being the best person for the job, not because I need to tick a quota of we should have X number of people who have this description attached to their name. It should be they were the best for the job, and they should feel that when they got the job, it wasn't because someone in HR was trying to take a diversity, they should feel like I got the job because I am the best person for the job as me, full stop. Like I'm, I'm, I was the best candidate and therefore I got the job. So I think organizations that go about it in the right way with the mentality of it's not to tick a box or to, for marketing purposes, we have a mindset on it just because we think diversity is good for different ideas, people bringing different things to the table and different experiences and strengths. But ultimately, they are the best people for the job. First and foremost, everyone here is here because they, we think they are the best person for the job. Secondarily, we look at that organization that we put together and we're proud of the fact that it's diverse and represents many differences of opinion, background, experience, and so on. We're stronger for it. But I think in that order, not in the order of one, diversity, two, higher, to meet that diversity because I think it produces this is just for me I think I wouldn't want to be in a job where I was thinking am I here because I'm the best for the job or am I here because there was someone stronger smarter more qualified better fit all those things but they needed to tick some kind of policy box for 2020 say yeah so that's how I look at these organizations these programs they're done smartly, fantastic, but they must be done, they should be done kind of in the, in the healthy way. So I, I would say that in, in that case, the responsibility is to create a larger pool of candidates and making sure that the opportunity is at least available to a greater pool rather than, you know, using your LinkedIn to your first degree connections, yeah. posting something like, it's okay to hire based on meritocracy, like, and, and made the best person for the job get it. But also there has to be some responsibility Agreed. in bringing forward those opportunities, which is something that, you know, when we were talking about startups, your stretch, there's so much going on. Like, it's not part of the protocol of publishing a job making sure that it's also being shared across organizations that promote diverse hires and stuff. So if there's one thing to change, I would say that's that. I agree completely. I think the opportunity question is critical. I think it's Malcolm Gladwell has that point about like access. Um, poverty isn't deprivation, it's isolation. So it's not being poor isn't necessarily that you don't have stuff. It's that you're isolated from the opportunity to get stuff. So he gave an example of, you know, think you reader when you were little. If you had kind of said to your either of your parents, like, you know, mom, dad, when I'm older, I want to be a astronaut. What are the odds that they could have gotten you somehow an opportunity to meet with someone from NASA. And he said, like, if the answer is maybe 
there's a chance my dad would know someone who knows someone and I could get to go and spend a day in like a NASA office. You are incredibly privileged because there are so many people who if they said to their parents, I want to be an astronaut, their parents wouldn't know anyone who knows anyone, their teachers wouldn't know anyone who knows anyone, there'd be no access even to the, not even the, you know, the opportunity, just to the network. A proxy for the opportunity. Exactly. And so that is kind of, so the isolation of maybe amazing, talented people who have every capacity to, I don't know, change the world, to be dramatic, right? But like to uncover incredible advances in science or solve huge problems or write great novels, right? You, their, their, their isolation and the lack of the opportunity is, is like critical. And I think you're right that this is the, the missing part. So yes, yeah, so if an organization is presented with 500 Harvard, Yale, Princeton graduates, but then the path into Harvard, Yale and Princeton is from primarily private schools. And, you know, it, it, the funnel will always be kind of predominantly the same type. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think how to solve that. I think we all have a responsibility. I know that I can say that I definitely don't do anywhere near to what I know I could be doing. And my excuses are the same lazy excuses as anyone else, right? I have a job, I have my wife and my kids and my bill to pay, my mortgage. And, you know, life is always coming first and above other th other, all these other things that I'd love to solve. And there's other people dealing with this, so let them deal with it. I can just support from the sidelines. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. You were cringing when you said change the world. <laughs> the startup lingo for... Uh... Raising money without a product. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate I appreciate the cringe, and we're nearing the end of our uh, of our time together. Is there anything that we hadn't brought up that you think is uh, crucial to the conversation? Um, not at all. I hope I haven't been uh, boring or gone off on too many tangents. I'm sure you haven't. And um, with that, Daniel, I want to thank you for coming, for being open. Uh, for being able to take us through your journey. What Definitely. is the best way for people who listen to us to get in touch with you? I think the best way to go to our, our website, payosu.com. Um, also, you know, to reach out to you and, you know, to say, hey, I want to connect with Daniel and then for sure put them in contact with pleasure. Excellent. So we'll do that. And thanks again for coming on to the show. Wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. I much appreciate it. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 